Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm John Huntsman, chair of the Atlantic Council, and we are indeed uh, delighted and grateful to have you all with us. Um, thank you for being here today to discuss a, tof a topic that, uh, as uh, the former U.S. ambassador to China, is very near and dear to my heart, and that is China and its evolving global role. And we're delighted to uh, be able to unveil the Adrian Arsh Latin America Center's latest report titled, A Globalized Runmin B, Will It Reshape Latin America? Peter Schechter is here. We're grateful for his leadership, among many others on his team. Thanks enormously to our generous partners at HSBC, represented here today by their Chairman of Global Banking for the Americas and Atlantic Council board member, Jerry Maddow. Jerry has become a great friend over the years, and I'm absolutely delighted that our interests lined up to allow for this kind of special partnership, Jerry. We thank you. But it's a partnership that goes far beyond today's discussion and a similar event in Mexico City next month. Over the next two years, with HSBC's generous support, we will look at a number of issues critical to the China-Latin America relationship from investment to trade to energy issues, with report launches and events in Washington, New York, in China, and various Latin American countries. So stay tuned for more programming on this hugely important set of issues. Now I'd also like to say a very warm welcome to the Executive Vice Chair of the Atlantic Council Board, Adrian Arsht, who is with us in the audience today. Adrian, thank you. Uh, Adrian, uh, is in large part responsible for the vision uh, of this organization and the work across a range of issues uh, which uh, uh, have been so successful in recent years. She really is uh, uh, a remarkable driving force. And Adrian, we thank you for so many good deeds that you do for this organization. Today's discussion is on a topic which requires global attention beyond just the financial world. So I'm delighted to be joined by a distinguished panel of experts to discuss the profound impact of Runmin-B's internationalization and the impact that it will have on emerging markets, particularly in Latin America. Our event comes at a critical moment as just on Saturday, the Chinese Runmin-B became the fifth global currency to be accepted as an official reserve asset by the International Monetary Fund. This is a giant step forward for China a telling moment in the country's emergence as a global economic powerhouse. Now, for countries in Latin America, such as Brazil and Argentina, that already have substantial trade and investment partnerships with China, this development could further improve bilateral cooperation. However, it's vital we also consider the broader ramifications the Runmin-B's internationalization will have on other Latin American economies, as well as its implications for our own domestic economy. Today's discussion will delve into the meat of these issues, providing further context to the report's findings and to China's highly complex relationship with Latin America. After I invite Jerry to say a few words, we'll have two separate panel discussions. The first one moderated by Sam Fleming of the Financial Times, and then by Jason Marzak, director of the Adrian Arch Center uh, for La uh, Latin America Economic Growth Initiative. Uh, please remember today's conversation is on the record and is being live streamed online. 
I encourage all of you to tweet about the event using the hashtag RMB in L-A-T-A-M, LATAM. Thank you all for joining us today, and it's uh, with great honor uh, that I now turn the stage over to Jerry Mato. Thank you also very much. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Thank you, Governor Hansman, for your kind remarks. It's such a pleasure to be working with you and the Atlantic Council on this important endeavor. Governor Hansman, your remarks really encapsulate why now is such an important moment to host this event, just a couple of days after the Raman B has centered the international reserves. This is also auspicious timing for us to, pu to publicly launch our two-year partnership with the Atlantic Council, an institution known for its vision, an institution with whom we share many core values. Without being redundant, during this two-year partnership, we will dive deeper into issues of trade, investment, energy, and security in the China-Latin American relationship with events around the world. We had a very successful private roundtable in New York a few months ago on this topic, which also featured an impressive group of people. I would like to thank those participants as well for helping inform today's report. Finally, thank you to Douglas and Andre, as well as the team at the Atlantic Council for producing another high-quality publication. So, why focus on the China-Latin American relationship, and why now? After nearly 2,500% increase in two-way trade since 2000, the terms of the China-Latin American relationship are on the cusp of change. Ramambi internalization will make trade and investment between the two regions a more seamless transaction. At the same time, a globalized Ramambi will mean transaction cost savings for hundreds of companies in Latin America and other emerging markets. But there are some risks involved, as our own market region has shown, and the infrastructure for more Ramambi denominated transaction is still being built. What is the next phase of the China-Latin American relationship? And what are the implications for the Western Hemisphere? Will the Ramambi reshape the region? Today, HSBC and the Atlantic Council are looking forward to a discussion that will highlight the nuances in this issue. This discussion is not about winners and losers, but their opportunity to be sized and hurdles to be overcome. And we have an excellent lineup of experts ready to explain where China, Latin America, and the U.S. will find those. With that, I will turn it over to our first panel. Thank you very much.
Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Sam Fleming. I'm the US economics editor of the Financial Times. Uh, and it's a great pleasure to be here with a superb uh, panel. Uh, as Governor Huntsman said, it was a giant leap forward for China. Uh, its inclusion in the SDR uh, on Saturday, it's a historic moment in terms of currency and also economic development for China and the world. And so the ramifications are huge. And that's what we're here to discuss uh, this morning. Let me introduce uh, an excellent panel to talk about, uh, to talk about these issues. On my immediate left is Douglas Arna, uh, who's from the Faculty of Law of Hong Kong University and a co-author of uh, this morning's report on the implications uh, for Latin America. On his um, left is uh, Hei-Wai Tang, uh, who's an advanced uh, an assistant professor of international economics at Johns Hopkins, uh, and also uh, a visiting fellow at the Dallas Fed. And on the far left is uh, Clyde, uh, Clyde Wardle from, the, uh, from HSBC, who's an emerging markets uh, strategist, uh, foreign exchange strategist. Uh, Douglas, can I start with you? Uh, let me talk a bit about the report. Um, obviously, huge ramifications from this uh, internationalization. Um, um, one of the arguments you make is that the ramifications go well beyond just the world of uh, treasury and central banking. Uh, perhaps you could spend a couple minutes just outlining why this is such an important uh, theme for the US, uh, for the global uh, economy, the US economy and Chinese economy. Thanks, Sam, for that. And, and also, um, thanks to, to the council for being here and to my co-author, Andre, who's in the front row there. Um, I think one of the, the key points of both the report uh, as well as the answer to your question is that China has reemerged as one of the world's major economies. And with that has come a major position uh, in trade, in finance, and investment. And one aspect of that traditionally has been increasing use of the currency. And so as we look at China's increasing economic role in the world, it's also uh, important to think about the increasing role of the currency, and in particular as the relationship between the major currencies like the dollar, the euro, and as the RMB emerges, the sort of challenges for global markets uh, of the relationships between those currencies. Let me uh, ask about the, the, the amount of use that the RMB is now getting in, in international transactions. Um, it's fairly small mm. still, in fact, very small. Um, what are the key barriers to an increase in, in the use of the RMB? I think there are, there are two sides of that. The first is that very much we're seeing, initially we saw very rapid growth. And certainly if we look at Asian currency usage, the RMB in the context of Asian transactions has become really very substantial. Internationally, it seems to float in terms of trade payments somewhere between um, just below or sometimes just above the level of the yen to just below the level of the Canadian dollar. So still small, particularly when you compare that use to the size of China's trade flows. I think over the past year and a half, um, there's been a lot of attention on the internationalization process, but we've also had uh, a lot of volatility in Chinese domestic markets, uh, in particular in the stock market, uh, and just over a year ago uh, in the context of the currency markets. And I think the context of some of those domestic volatilities uh, has slowed progress down in the context of international usage. Um, hey, well, I can I ask you uh, about uh, the moment that we are in history, in a sense? Why is China pursuing this internationalization process now? Why is it a propitious moment uh, for China to be uh, attempting to internationalize? 
So I think this is not the first time that China wanted to um, sort of play a more major role in the global e economy. Uh, so China joined the WTO in 2001. That was basically sort of the watershed for China to be more engaged in trade and also international finance, financial flows. Uh, in fact, in the previous regime uh, under Hu uh, and Wen, uh, in 2006, they had a big meeting inviting a lot of foreign leaders, uh, particularly those from emerging markets, to launch this thing called the Go, Go Global Policies. Uh, and as a result, you see you know, substantial increase in investment in Africa and other emerging markets. Um, uh, so you know, this is a very different kind of globalization this time, right? So in terms of trade, in terms of investment abroad, China has been sort of pushing very hard um, part of the reason is because you know, the opportunities for investment in the domestic economy have been largely gone. Right? So how many high-speed railways you can build, you know, how many freeways you can build connecting second-tier cities. But you know, more importantly, you know, something that I've been doing research on regarding Chinese economic growth is that a lot of times the Chinese government wanted to use some external pressure to facilitate and speed up uh, internal reforms. So WTO is a good example. Uh, you know, in fact, uh, you know, the prime minister at that time said WTO is not so much about trade liberalization, it's more about privatization. Because it is so difficult to privatize some of these state enterprises, so therefore you know, WTO provides <laughs> some sort of external pressure and regimes for them to basically privatize a lot of these firms. So this time I see similarities. I mean, you know, on the one hand, China wanted to be you know, more powerful in terms of uh, uh, you know, inducing other countries to use their, their uh, currency. But on the other hand, they also need some external pressure to basically reform their financial and banking sectors. Interesting. Um, we, we obviously saw, particularly earlier this year, an awful lot of volatility in financial markets in China and also uh, really confusion, I think, in a lot of other uh, global capitals about what uh, China's foreign exchange strategy was. Um, how did the uh, Chinese government reduce that uh, confusion and, and uncertainty, and how successful do you think they've been? I think, um, so, you know, I got my training in, in the U.S. You know, I am a big believer in sort of decentralized economy, free market. Uh, once in a while, there could be room for the government to intervene and sort of, you know, reduce volatility in the stock market. But the way that the Chinese government has been doing has been, you know, by and large disappointing, right? So it sort of scared investors from abroad and also scared domestic investors. Uh, and as a result, you know, the kind of housing bubble we have seen in other cities in China, in second tier cities uh, in China these days is sort of like a consequence of, you know, heavy regulation of the financial market, in particular the stock market. So that has been, in my opinion, sort of, you know, a backward development in terms of you know, having uh, additional reforms uh, on the financial sector. So hopefully, you know, with the renminbi being included as an SDR currency of the IMF, that will provide some legitimacy and also some external pressure so that you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, their hands are tied and you know, they could not just intervene anytime they want. But on the other hand, you know, they will provide more confidence and credibility about their financial system. 
Uh, Clyde, let me um, turn to you. First of all, could you pick up on that, that last point? Um, how successful do you think the, the calming measures have been uh, in terms of, especially foreign exchange markets more recently, after all the jitters that we saw earlier this year? Well, I think, obviously, um, a year to 18 months ago, we were in a, a, a rather difficult situation. Um, we had a lot of stresses in the, the global markets uh, from anticipation of the Fed tightening, that was strengthening the dollar. Um, and so a number of emerging market currencies were weakening at that time. And at the same time, you had some concerns about the trajectory of growth in China. Some, uh, some were calling for a hard landing. Um, and, and this led to, uh, and, and preceding that, of course, China had begun to liberalize um, some elements of the capital account to allow for, for uh, investment from China to move overseas. Um, of course, with the offshore renminbi, uh, the, uh, the CNH, or, or, um, and, and now in other centers as well as Hong Kong, uh, there's an ability for foreign investors to, um, to speculate on the, on the renminbi. Um, it trades as a, a freely convertible currency offshore. Um, and these factors were contributing to pressure, uh, uh, downward pressure on the currency. And what we've seen before, especially in the, in the global financial crisis, when um, obviously there was, uh, we'd had less liberalization at, at that time, um, but uh, we saw from the authorities in China that they, they tend to have a batten down the hatches approach uh, to, to situations such as this. And I think what's important is to just focus on the long-term trajectory here of the reform um, and internationalization process. We believe that that will definitely continue. We think that you know, what we saw 18 months ago um, was, was more a, a blip in terms of, okay, let's, let's calm things down. Uh, try to remove the dislocation that we saw between the onshore currency and the offshore currency. Um, and I think after the SDR inclusion, we're actually going to see an acceleration of reforms that make those two markets trade much more in line with each other. Let me ask uh, about the implications for corporates uh, specifically uh, in this internationalization process. I mean, the, uh, Douglas's report refers to the idea that transaction costs could be, could be reduced. What, what kind of uh, benefits are you currently seeing for your clients in terms of this process? Yeah, that's a great question because we've seen over the last uh, few years the ability for corporates, obviously, to transact in renminbi where before they would make all, uh, tend to make all payments and receivables in dollars. Um, but there are significant constraints with that process. Uh, you, you don't have control of the currency conversion. Um, uh, you're, you're essentially leaving it to the supplier or, or the, the, the payer um, to manage those foreign exchange risks. And of course, often prices can be inflated to take an account of, of those foreign exchange risks. So corporates now are, are really finding out, uh, you know, if they're, for instance, um, sourcing um, manufactured goods from China, uh, they're asking for, for uh, invoicing in RMB. They're setting up RMB accounts uh, in the offshore market, um, which are very easily funded. Um, and then making payments that have um, you know, no documentation or regulatory requirements attached to them. Um, and they're finding you know, up to 4% savings on, on what they were paying previously. Um, so it's, it's an important process that corporates need to look at and they need to understand if you're gonna do business with, uh, with Chinese companies, then you really need to look hard at, uh, at using the renminbi as a, as a trade currency. Douglas, what did your uh, research uh, throw up in terms of the potential benefits, but also the, the barriers at the moment? And I think 
Glenn's highlighted a couple of them, but I think from the, the benefit standpoint, one is that um, as we see ever-increasing trade and investment flows, um, using the domestic currency provides an alternative in accessing the domestic Chinese market. And one of the themes we picked up on the report is that much of the trade and investment into Latin America so far from China has largely focused on commodities and resources. And this is something in the context of thinking about the region going forward. We think that there's a need for rebalancing that direction and that use of the RMB to target the very large and rapidly growing Chinese market uh, is one of the important options. Hey, um, <clears throat> um, uh, why can you talk a little bit about um, the same point, i.e. targeting the Chinese market? What are the main barriers at the moment for, for that targeting process? I think the main barriers um, you know, for more investors and banks around the world to use the RMB is um, you know, the, still a substantial capital control for both inflows and outflows uh, between Chinese investors and foreign investors. Even though the transaction cost could be substantially reduced uh, as a result of RMB being included in SDR and the, and, and the affiliated uh, reforms. Um, you know, the amount of money that can be channeled out and in uh, are still heavily regulated. Five years ago, I think the Chinese government was probably worried about capital inflows uh, driving up uh, the stock market and the housing market, but these days they're more worried about capital outflows. So the kind of investors that can still uh, you know, invest uh, in China are the so-called qualified uh, institutional investors. There are about 300 of them. Uh, and at the same time, you know, the domestic investors who can invest abroad are the so-called quality domestic investors. Uh, so without uh, substantial removal of the capital control, I don't think uh, at this moment we can say much about how much the RMB could be uh, major global currencies yet. Uh, although you know, the Chinese government was very committed, in fact, two years ago, uh, the premier uh, said uh, by 2020, uh, the Chinese government is going to have full convertibility for the RMB. Uh, now is almost the end of 2016, so there are four more years to go. Uh, of course, we are talking about China, right? You know, magic could happen, uh, but it's hard to imagine in four years that we will see the RMB uh, could be fully convertible mostly because of the capital control and partly because I think the financial market and the associated legal environment still need a lot of reforms for that to happen. Clyde, what, what, um, I'll go back to you yeah. in a second, Douglas. Clyde, what are your observations on Yeah, no, I think um, over the last few years, one thing that we've noticed, and, and, um, and if I may pat ourselves on the back a little bit, is that we've tended to, uh, in our research have been talking about that the pace of reforms is going to be faster than most expect. I mean, certainly in the period of sort of 2010 to 2013. Um, and that was definitely true. So I think there is scope for an acceleration of reforms going forward. I think we've been through a rocky patch vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, the potential for the, uh, for the Chinese economy and, and what's happening in global markets. There are still risks out there. I mean, we've seen uh, with the Brexit vote um, we've got the U.S. election coming up. Um, you know, there are uncertainties, and, uh, and I think that the, the authorities in China are going to remain very cognizant of that. But assuming that, uh, uh, particularly on the domestic front, the China, China's economy remains steady and stable, um, and we don't see any capital outflow pressures, then I think what you could see is, a, is a, an acceleration of the reform process. 
Um, whether it'll have full convertibility uh, of the capital account by 2020 remains to be seen, but I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it too hard. I, th I think um, you know, we're already we're beginning to see major uh, central banks around the world, and including in Latin America, buying renminbi for their reserve assets. Of course, the numbers relative to their total reserves are very small, uh, but that's definitely the trend we're seeing, um, and, uh, and I think we'll see that continue. Douglas. Yeah, actually, just a couple of follow-ons on both of those. It's, it's a sort of ongoing joke that for the past 20 years, we've been five years away from capital account convertibility in China. Yeah. Uh, and I think over the past couple of years, we thought that maybe that five years might actually happen this time. But um, it still seems like it's five years away and could continue to be five years away for some years to come. Um, one question on, on your point on um, use of central bank reserves. Since the opening of the, uh, the interbank bond market, are you seeing more basically direct access? Um, yeah, we're seeing uh, significant inflows over the last six months more than, I mean, prior to March of this year, mm. uh, the, the inflows were actually uh, pretty, pretty uh, negligible. Um, and we were obviously seeing outflows in, in the sort of six to 12 months prior to, to March. Um, but yeah, over the last six months, we've seen a significant pickup in, in inflows um, from both uh, uh, institutional investors and, and also from central banks as well. And this takes us back to the trade point, because one of the reasons why central banks are going to be increasing their reserves is that given the trade flows, and if we see, as we are seeing, an increasing denomination of those trade flows in RMB, there's a necessity for central banks to manage those. And as a result, central banks around the world have a need to access assets, particularly in the domestic bond markets, to manage their own reserves, to manage flows as a result of trade and investment. Hey, why? Uh, do you agree with that, um, uh, <laughs> that, that assumption? Yeah, so I think in the long run, there will be uh, increasing amount of uh, sort of reserve-related investment going mm -hmm. into China. Uh, but there got to be prerequisites in the sense that, you know, convertibility is one of them. Of course, we don't expect full convertibility in four or five years, but increasing uh, level of convertibility would give uh, foreign investors some confidence that, you know, they can, you know, in, in, in bad situations, sort of convert remedy back to their own currencies. Uh, you know, in terms of trade flows uh, and, you know, how much of it is going to be invoiced in renminbi, I remain very optimistic that, you know, more of that is going to be invoiced in, uh, in renminbi. Because hmm. uh, uh, I do some research uh, on China-Africa relations, uh, and I realize, you know, one trick, well, I shouldn't use the word trick, but, you know, one strategy <laughs> that the Chinese government has been using is basically investing a lot in natural resources in Africa, in renminbi. In return, those African nations will have to buy Chinese goods in renminbi. Exactly. So that way is a very effective way of sort of, you know, putting renminbi to be a global currency. So on the trade side, I'm very optimistic. On the financial side, the reason why I am a little bit more reserved is because um, I think there's still quite a bit of, you know, legal reforms and financial market reforms that need to be done before that uh, can happen. Um, you know, Morgan Stanley, I think, had a very uh, optimistic uh, uh, estimates that in the long run, I think they have 10 years uh, in mind, that there will be one trillion uh, US dollars worth of renminbi flowing into China 
as a result of uh, currency reserve uh, purposes. Let me take a step back now and look at the, um, the bigger picture, um, and in particular the announcement or the, the, the landmark reached over the weekend with the SDR. Um, Douglas, what, what, what are the practical implications for this, this um, inclusion in the SDR? How important, is it mainly a symbolic thing, or, or is it a, do you think it's a major, major thing for the, future, for the, for the development of the uh, Chinese uh, uh, currency? I, mean, I, I actually go back to, to, to Clyde's and, and, and Heiwa's earlier points, that I think when we look at the SDR inclusion, there are really two principal reasons why it's important. The first has to do with the process of domestic financial restructuring. In other words, much of the strategy of the Chinese leadership saw SDR inclusion much in the same way as WTO joining. In other words, this was a way to lock in the reform process. And I think internationally as well, once that became understood, that SDR inclusion was one way to lock in this continued process of domestic financial reform, that has tremendous importance. The other aspect uh, is largely political, that um, it's something that is symbolic uh, and important from the standpoint of, as trade reflow, flows increase, the redenomination of central bank assets, the SDR inclusion makes it simpler. From the standpoint of will this cause uh, a dramatic increase in transactions, I think the answer is no. It's a much sort of longer term restructuring and political recognition process. And taking a, keeping from view from 30,000 feet, um, can we talk a little bit about the implications for the US then as, as the prime uh, currency or the holder of the prime currency in the world? Uh, over what period could you start to see that being challenged, uh, Clyde, by China? Are we talking many, many decades? Uh, is this a threat or is this an opportunity for the US? I don't, certainly don't think it's a threat. Um, I mean, just in terms of currency flows, uh, the BIS does a, 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 a triennial every three years. They do a survey of the foreign exchange market. And, um, you know, the, the U.S. dollar is still by far the dominant currency that, uh, that um, over 90% of foreign exchange transactions are, are, um, are with the dollar as one side of those currency transactions. So that's not going to change. Uh, the renminbi is a, is a very small a portion of that, but what is interesting in that survey, and, and we've seen over as long as I've been in the market um, and watching this survey, you've seen FX volumes going up every three years, and this is the first year that the uh, total FX volumes actually <coughs> fell uh, versus 2013. What's interesting, though, is that the, um, the renminbi FX volumes are now up to the eighth largest of all currencies. Um, still a relatively small number compared to the, to the total dollar transactions. Um, but interestingly, that in a, in a three-year span when total FX volumes have fallen, uh, renminbi volumes have actually risen. So I think that's reflective of what's happening and will continue to happen. Um, you know, commodities are priced in dollars. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. So I think mm. Latin American uh, commodity exporters... Um, uh, may struggle to try to uh, to, to shift, or, or the, the Chinese certainly uh, will struggle, I think, to try to shift that pricing in, into renminbi. So I don't think that's going to change. Um, but I do think it's significant for Latin American exporters uh, to look very uh, seriously um, at being paid in RMB as, a, as opposed to, to dollars for those uh, exports to China. Um, in particular, because Chinese current companies now 
uh, are actually f uh, running into some roadblocks and, and hurdles uh, themselves domestically to, to pay for their imports in, in US dollars. It's becoming increasingly easier for them to do that in RMB. Um, and, uh, and so I think mm. they, they will be quite open to Latin American exporters to China approaching them and, and being paid in RMB. It'll, it'll, make, uh, it'll, it'll be more convenient for both parties uh, and, and potentially uh, see cost savings for, for the Latin American companies exporting to China. Hey, why, what are your thoughts on the same on the same topic? What are the implications for the dollar and, and the U.S. Uh, more generally? So, so I think the way that I would analyze this is to separate denomination in currencies into those for trade flows and those for financial flows. So, in terms of the denomination in RMB for trade, uh, as I said, I think there will be an increasing use of RMB, uh, particularly within Asia. Uh, trade is you know, such a complicated uh, uh, subject these days because of the development of global value chains and increasing regionalization. So there could be sort of network and multiplying effects which will push the RMB to be more useful in international trade. Uh, in terms of uh, the denomination for financial transactions, um, I, I think, you know, RMB is still sort of far away from uh, the US dollar as being the major safety uh, investment asset, uh, you know, as I said, because of you know incomplete convertibility and also the associated, uh, uh, you know, relatively inefficient financial system. Uh, but but let's see, you know, give China 10, 20 years, you know, the the gap will be reduced. But for now, I wouldn't be worried about the U.S. dollar being displaced by any major currencies in the world as the major safety asset and as the major reserve currency. Douglas, um, but I'm gonna ask you to just get, turn to that question and then we'll open it up to questions. So uh, if you have any questions, do, uh, do raise your hand up. But Douglas, first of all, yeah. what are your thoughts on Just, that? I think I, I would nuance that a little bit. And I think what we're very likely to see is in the near future that the RMB will emerge around the third slot. That in the context of Chinese economic size and, and relationship, you can expect that it will probably uh, eclipse the yen in the near future. I don't really the see... The future meaning? Next year. Right. Um, it, it almost did it this year. Um, so this is something that is, is near term. Yep. So I think what we're looking at is uh, three major currencies going forward. I don't see any uh, likelihood in the medium term of the RMB eclipsing the dollar, but something in parallel to the euro makes a great deal of sense. Finally, from the standpoint of uh, the financial side as opposed to the trade side, we have now seen China emerge uh, as a net foreign creditor, as one of the world's major foreign investors, and there's an increasing push for that uh, investment and credit to be provided in RMB and international markets. And as a result, if we look at historical process, processes of other creditor nations emerging throughout history, we will see an increase in use of the currency for financial transactions as a corollary of that. Right. Um, questions from the audience. Please uh, raise your hand and do say where you're from uh, when you ask your question. Uh, gentleman here, please. Uh, um, please wait for the microphone. <coughs> My name is Walter Jurassic. Yes, I have been in China. I observe life in China. I will ask you a simple question, actually. 
because there is a trade imbalance between all of the countries, between China and the rest of the world. Now, eventually, Chinese people will demand better standard of living, and the trade imbalance might collapse because Chinese will demand better life, better standard of living, etc., etc. So, my uh, the protectionism from other countries, they will say no more Chinese product will be entering to our countries. The currency eventually will go down with the same situation because there's no way they can sustain. Because if other countries close the markets and the imbalance is so great, what will be the future of Chinese currency if this happened? Hey, what? Can I ask you to take that one? Um, so if I understand you correctly, so you are concerned about the fact that uh, foreign consumers may not want as much Chinese goods to be exported to those countries, so therefore the demand for the renminbi will be reduced. Is that the conjecture? Um, so I'm a trade economist, so I believe in comparative advantage. And, and I still think that you know, China still has a lot to provide in international trade. Uh, labor costs have been increasing quite a lot, but you know, compared to those in Mexico and the US, they are still much lower. What I'm worried more about is basically the increasing protectionism that we see in the US and around the world. So that may push Chinese growth you know, back by you know, one or two percentage points if I have to put a number on. Uh, you are absolutely right that the, the renminbi has been weakening. Right? If you look at the exchange rates, I think the renminbi has been depreciating since November last year. But I don't think you know, that sort of sudden you know, increase in trade protection would lead to a collapse of the renminbi just because you know, there's still uh, you know, a lot of investment and a lot of demand for Chinese goods in the absence of protection. But why don't you invest inside the China? If they would demand eventually better standard of living, they say the labor will be costing more. This, this is going to happen. Eventually it's going to happen anywhere in the world. The people will demand better standard of living. And what's going to happen in China when they say, hey, we cannot live on that? Let me give, give this one to Douglas and then we'll move on to the yeah. next question. Yeah. I was just going to say that, that actually we're already seeing this as, as an important trend. Wage levels are increasing, consumerism in China is increasing dramatically, and in fact that's probably the Chinese government's um, biggest objective right now is restructuring the economy to push it up the value scale, up the innovation scale, and very much RMB internationalization is in fact part of that process to drive the development of the Chinese economy. So in fact, what you're saying is already happening very dramatically. I see it uh, where I live in, in southern China, that wage levels have, have increased dramatically in the sorts of low-cost manufacturing that used to dominate in southern China have been pushed out to, to Vietnam, to Bangladesh, to Western. Increasingly, uh, what you see is higher value-added uh, electronics and, in fact, quite innovative developments. Uh, Huawei, Xiaomi, and the like taking over where used to be shoe and textile factories. Okay, uh, another question, please. Uh, lady here first. Um, could please wait for the microphone. Towards the front. A little bit further. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. 
Thanks very much. Hi, I'm Usma. Um, I was from University of Hong Kong. Um, my question is partly related to the previous question on the domestic Chinese reforms. And as Highway and uh, Doug also mentioned about that this RMB internationalization is more uh, would have deeper implications with the domestic locking in of the domestic Chinese reforms. I wonder how much of these domestic market reforms are going to cost Chinese in terms of, for example, unemployment, or we are talking about the um, rising wages or increased cost of living and other things. So would these reforms, the market reforms, would be worth the cost in terms of unemployment, social unrest, or other okay. things. Um, do you want to take that one? Yeah, what, um, what, and what is the cost? I, mean, I think the, the quick answer is that um, the, the sort of view uh, in China at the moment is that the risk of not doing anything, of staying with uh, the old export-oriented low-wage uh, manufacturing-driven model uh, is at the extent of its possibilities. And that as the, the labor force is already shrinking, that in fact that previous model is no longer sustainable. So the only option to avoid much more severe problems is in fact a process of restructuring the economy to avoid the middle income trap. And financial reforms are a very important process of making that happen. So it's very much a balancing act between um, the costs and challenges of the restructuring versus the costs and challenges of the fact that the old economic model is no longer sustainable. So trying to balance the two. Clyde, Clyde how, how bumpy is this, uh, is this proving to be? Um, I think remarkably smooth so far. I mean, I think the, the, the uh, government switch to um, focusing on domestic consumption a, a few years ago, and, and part of that reform process was uh, trying to uh, disencourage savings from domestic uh, um, uh, pop the Chinese population. Uh, typically, Chinese, the Chinese are very good savers. They save primarily for retirement and their children's education um, and, and health benefits. And, uh, and so what the government has been doing is they've been building you know, new uh, public schools and hospitals um, to try to encourage uh, you know, dis-savings and, and more consumption. And in, in general, that has become a, a relatively successful policy uh, t to date. So, you know, I think this, this trend will continue. I think the, the economy is evolving, and, and it's certainly moving away from the export-led uh, economy. And, um, you know, I think as long as you don't see significant pressures in, in, uh, in certain parts of the economy, especially the property sector, uh, then I think that we can be relatively sanguine about the outlook. Uh, one more question um, uh, towards the back, please. Oh, sorry. Right there. Thanks. Should I? Hi, thanks. Uh, just a quick question. Uh, Sean Miner from the Peterson Institute. Clyde, you mentioned that uh, you think the SDR inclusion will spark reforms that close the gap between the onshore and offshore RMB. Is that because you think it's going to move uh, towards more convertibility, or is there another reason? 
Well, the, the difference between the onshore market and the offshore market, and, and I'll just say a couple of points to those who are unfamiliar. You, you, if you imagine the onshore market is basically uh, uh, domestically in China, and we talk about the offshore market as all of those other centers where you can trade the renminbi uh, on, a, on a free basis. It's, it's literally like trading the euro. Um, and, and they've set up uh, clearing houses in, in 16 cities around the world now. Um, the first one was in Hong Kong, and that's still uh, where the most liquidity exists. Uh, but you really have to imagine a pool of liquidity of renminbi in the offshore market and, and obviously a much bigger pool of liquidity in the onshore market. Um, and so what we've had at certain periods of stress uh, is, the, is the liquidity in the offshore market become uh, smaller, uh, and that leads to, to pressures on the currency and, and, uh, and the money market. Um, and we see money market rates going up. We see the currency weakening relative to the onshore market. Um, and, uh, and certainly this has been a concern. And it's over the, since 2010, when we really began to see the advent of the offshore market, there have been a couple of periods where you've seen a dislocation in terms of the rates between the onshore and the offshore market. In some cases, the offshore market, the renminbi, was trading more strongly, especially in the early months uh, of this market, where there was extreme demand for, for renminbi assets. Um, but more recently, over the last 12, 18 months, you've seen it go the other way with, with some, some stresses the other way. So I think the reforms are really going to uh, focus on moving liquidity between those two centers uh, and the ability for banks that have presences in both uh, markets to pool that liquidity. And I think that will encourage the process of, of um, unifying the two rates on a, on a longer term basis. Obviously, if we get to a period where there's full capital account convertibility, uh, then there'll be no issue, and, and uh, any differences between those markets will disappear. Well, it's uh, as I started, said at the start, it's a huge uh, historic moment, a uh, historic week in terms of uh, currency policies and economic policies around the world. A lot of this is going to be debated over the next few days because the uh, IMF and World Bank are having their annual meetings, and this is very germane to those uh, discussions. Um, as I think you will have found from uh, this excellent panel, it's extremely complex process and has a very, very long way to go, the internationalization story. Uh, so for the time being, please join me in thanking the panel. So, um, got the next panel coming up. and. Uh, Great. Well, thank you very much. Uh, good morning. I'm Jason Marzak. I'm the uh, director of the uh, Latin America Economic Growth Initiative uh, at the Adrian Arts Latin America discussion. And Sam, thank you for, very much for captaining a great discussion. Doug, Haywa, and Clyde for your insight. I think the only problem with this first panel is you did such a good job that now you've really set the bar for our second panel. Uh, so now we have a, a bar, to, bar to hit. Uh, before we start, I'd like to again congratulate Douglas and Andre here in the first row on an excellent uh, report on a topic that I think, frankly, may be overlooked by some as just a technical development in the, in the, in the, in the world, but really has the potential to reshape how business is done across emerging markets, including Latin America. And that's really no small statement, but frankly, it's, it's true. The Remibi becoming an international reserve asset is not something to be overlooked. As our first panel said, 
it has a huge potential to bring changes, not just in the Chinese market and the pace of reforms, but really there are global implications. Um, so we spent the last half hour looking at the ins and outs of China's uh, currency policy, but we are the Adrian Arsh Latin America Center. So the next, the next panel is going to look at what this means for Latin America. And we have a dream team, I would say, a dream team of speakers to, uh, or my dream team of speakers at least, uh, to, to look at that. And I'm going to sit down here. Um, the first speaker, uh, you have their full bios, uh, their handout when you came in, but I'm going to briefly introduce them. To my left here is uh, Barbara Kotschwer. Barbara is a senior investment policy officer in the trade and global competitive uh, global practice at the World Bank. In addition to that, she spent uh, eight years previously at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, where among other things, Barbara, you published on a number of topics, but also uh, Chinese foreign direct investment in Latin America. So this is a, a, a topic that's very familiar to Barbara. Next to Barbara is a is a uh, a person who is no uh, stranger to Washington, uh, somebody who commands uh, respect around this town and and globally, and that's Ambassador Luis Miguel Castilla, uh, who I'm proud to say is a senior fellow uh, now for the Adrian Arsh Latin America Center. Uh, ambassador Castilla was uh, was previously Peru's ambassador to Washington up until just a few months ago, and among his many other responsibilities uh, in, in his life, he's also served as Peru's minister of economy and finance under the administration of Pre President Umala. Um, so Miguel, now that you're out of government, we can ask you those, those difficult questions, right? <laughs> uh, to Miguel's left is, uh, is Claudia uh, Trevisan, who is the Washington correspondent of O Estado de Sao Paulo, uh, a newspaper that's familiar to many, but for those who, who it isn't, it's one of Brazil's leading and most influential newspapers. Uh, among Claudia's many foreign assignments, Claudia spent six years, right? Six years living. Six years. In six years. Claudia spent six years living in Beijing, but that's not her only claim to fame when it comes to China. You've written now two books mm -hmm. uh, on, on China. Uh, among, and I don't know how you find the free time uh, being the being the correspondent uh, submitting daily stories, but uh, a lot of time living in China and writing about China. So I've asked the speakers. Mm -hmm. I've actually encouraged the speakers to disagree with each other. Um, because that's what makes a panel fun. So uh, let's see if you all follow through on that. Um, what we're going to do in the next half hour is we're going to look at the general picture, and then we'll look at uh, risks, investment potential. And of course, although this is about China, Latin America, we are here in Washington, so we'll look at the US implications of, uh, of renminbi internationalization uh, as it pertains to, to Latin America. So let's get started with you, Barbara. I'm going to throw the first question since you're at my left. You've done a lot of excellent work on Chinese uh, FDI in Latin America. Do you see renminbi internationalization reshaping the investment picture across the region in the short to medium term? Or is this really, I mean, this is a tough question, but is this really, or are the real implications really still so much unknown that it won't be clear for years to come of what the real impact is? Well, thanks for such a narrow and specific question, Jason. No problem, question, no problem. Jason, it's I, a great I way to start the panel, that. keep it It general. is, and actually, you've given me the out to say, well, we really don't know. <laughs> but I, I'm not going to let you get away with that. Do that. So um, I, I probably should stipulate that although on my bio you see that I work at the World Bank, um, my views do not represent those of the World Bank, any member countries, any of my dear colleagues or their brothers, sisters. Um, I'm probably here more with my Georgetown professor hat. Um, one of your many claims to fame. One of my many claims to fame. Um, I think that's a really, it's an interesting question. As you know, you know, obviously, and, and the report 
mentions this, and congratulations on an excellent report. Um, it, you know, China's interactions in Latin America have really been sort of leading up to this. So in terms of renminbi internationalization, you already have three countries that have swap arrangements with China, and so there has been some activity in local currencies for the explain two. What a, what, explain what a swap agreement is quickly. The swap this. agreement, and I think the audience probably knows, but um, means that commercial transactions can be paid in the local currency. So if Brazil exports goods to China, those goods can be paid for in renminbi and mm -hmm. vice versa. And that actually brings up um, an interesting point that Douglas Arner made on the previous panel, which was the hope that this would lead to some rebalancing of the economic relationship between China and Latin America. As has been mentioned many times, there's a massive trade imbalance um, between China and just about all of China's trading partners in Latin America. That's certainly a big deal. And so Latin America imports lots of Chinese goods, but hasn't been able to break into the Chinese market in terms of exports or in terms of investment. And we'll talk about investment mm -hmm. in a little bit. If the internationalization of the currency, if the ability to use the renminbi um, can expand that, that would be great. And if Latin American companies can gain greater access to the Chinese market, then this would help Latin America break into a dynamic market. Now that said, China has been undertaking some reforms of its foreign direct investment regime, but there are still tremendous regulatory, administrative, and legal barriers in addition to reserved sectors. So, you know, I do hope that this is a signal that China is undertaking further economic reforms and that the, those can be to be of benefit to Latin American companies. Well, Barbara, like as we to. talked about the first panel, this has been something really that, that Latin American companies is all of this, in this room have really struggled with, is how do you break into the, the potential of the, of the Chinese, Chinese market? Um, and uh, Ambassador Castillo, or uh, Miguel, as you prefer to be, to be, to be called, um, RMB use, uh, international transactions, it, it, it provides a lot of opportunities, uh, new opportunities for Latin American countries, from investment in China uh, to attracting new investment from, from Chinese companies coming, all of this coming against the, the backdrop of a, of a boom in Chinese investment in the region. So I want to take you back to your days as finance minister. Um, uh, don't want to bring up any bad memories, but I'm going to take you back to these days. What, what steps should finance ministries take to best seize on the opportunities this could bring? But also there are some risks, as we talked about in the first panel. So how do you also, from a, from a finance ministry perspective, also mitigate some of those risks? Uh, well, thank you, Jason. And, uh, and let me also congratulate uh, the authors for a very um, um, you know, insightful um, report. Um, I actually, when we talk about Latin America here, I want to be clear, because here we have to do the distinction. One thing is the reality of cash-starved countries mm -hmm. that needed to build the reserves. I won't mention the country, but that, uh, you will know uh, that went into a swap agreement. And the other thing is of a very sophisticated country that would like to give options to its investors uh, and having a quota in the qualified institutional investor scheme namely two countries in the southern cone. And, and, and so there's different, uh, I think, motivations for countries. Uh, I think the opportunities, uh, trade-wise, uh, I think commodities will still remain uh, a, a driving factor for many South American countries, in spite of what's being told. And actually, uh, I think for the uh, non-commodity, which would perhaps 
fit better in, in terms of uh, RMB denomination. I think there's still a lot of, uh, in the same line um, uh, as Barbara mentioned, that a lot of uh, res uh, restrictions to enter uh, the Chinese market. Uh, uh, one talks about uh, tariffs, but if one looks at, for instance, the uh, subsidies and the VAT that the, the, the Chinese charge for the imports that come from, you know, for different agricultural products, they're huge, over 50%. So it is very difficult to access uh, the Chinese market uh, for non-standard non commodity uh, products uh, coming from anywhere in the world. Uh, here I'm talking about Latin America. So I would be less bullish in terms of this huge opportunity there is. Um, I see it more as an opportunity in terms of locking in reforms, in terms of uh, uh, trying to liberalize its uh, capital mark account, uh, deepen its financial market. I, I, I see that as the main um, um, you know, um, objective of this process of SDR inclusion, uh, of this um, RMB inclusion among the SDRs. But I wouldn't really be you know, too over optimistic in terms of this is the new you know, way for uh, um, uh, trade uh, to be denominated in RMB or, or, or finance. In terms of finance, um, I, I think there also needs to be adjustment um, in, um, and I'll tell you the case of Peru, for instance. Okay. In my own country, uh, the Chinese were very, uh, you know, uh, uh, very, um, um, aggressive in terms of opening up. Not only uh, they, they were able to open up uh, uh, one branch of their of, of the Chinese, um, but our legislation has um, you know constraints uh, towards uh, uh, linked companies, and given that for tax purposes, for banking purposes, if you're linked to you know a home office, a home a home uh, firm, then there are restrictions. And given that China, most of things are owned by the government, you know that imply that we had to change our banking system, our tax code, to be able to accommodate. And there's also restrictions in that regard. Uh, in terms of risks, I think uh, the, 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 the um, um, document does a good job in terms of the main objective of reducing transaction costs, of uh, taking away uh, currency risks. But, but, but still, you know, we are a, a, a region, I think, primarily that is seeking towards reducing its mismatches in currency. Uh, uh, Peru just did, for instance, an operation in, in, the, in the market to be able to increase the local currency denomination of its, of its debt. And I think firms on the corporate side um, are trying to minimize and try to hedge any you know, potential um, 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 uh, currency mismatches they may have. So you're, so you're saying that even, even though there's a reduction in transaction costs because of the Bermuda internationalization, Unlike, I think it was Doug in the first panel, those more bullish on the opening up the Chinese market, you, you see because of Chinese restrictions, that, that potential for Latin American companies to move into that market is... is uh, I, I see this as a long-run process. Yeah. And, and it's very country-specific. So I wouldn't actually mm -hmm. pull all Latin yep. American yep. countries in the same, in the same um, um, you know, bag. Yeah. Uh, Claudia, uh, uh, Miguel mentioned uh, he didn't want to mention any names of any countries, um, but he mentioned about... Uh, uh, China being a, a uh, uh, come, becoming sort of a, a lender of last resort uh, in the last decade uh, for certain countries in the region. I can I'll name the countries. Um, uh, one of them is is, Venez is Venezuela, and the other one is Argentina. Now, clarify this: mm -hmm. not under the current Argentine government, under the previous mm -hmm. uh, Argentine government. Um, and, and what that helped to do was it helped to prolong un unsustainable uh, financial conditions uh, in those in those countries. So 
why is it in Latin America's and, and China's interest to ensure that its loans and investments are, are being used, and, and again, uh, for sound mm -hmm. technical and economic purposes? I say the word Latin America, but I, 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 as Miguel mentioned, uh, talking about you know, specific mm -hmm. countries. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the, the main obvious reason is to try to guarantee that these resources are used in the most efficient way possible. <laughs> and they are used in projects that make sense from an economic point of view and does not perpetuate a development model that is unsustainable. And what I think that is clear in the case of Venezuela. Since 2005, China gave uh, 60 billion US dollars in loans to Venezuela. And there is no indication that the oil production in Venezuela is more efficient today than it was 10 years ago. At the contrary, mm -hmm. there is a reduction in oil production and the economic situation in the country is unprecedented. And, of, so, and from the Chinese side, I think there is the, the evident risk of not being repaid from the loan. And I think one could also agree that there is a risk of a political backlash in the situation where you have a change in the government after being associated so strongly uh, with the previous government. But I think if we look at the example of Argentina, I think this expectation might be wrong. Macri, Mauricio Macri uh, assumed office last year and initially there was a suspicions, suspicion in the new government towards China, that China was increased a lot its influence in Argentina under the, the Kirchner government. But the suspicion quickly vanished. Mm -hmm. uh, Mauricio Macri has already had two meetings with President Xi Jinping this year. And China has announced in the first semester of this year investments of $25 billion in Argentina. So I think there is a gravitational pull on the Chinese capacity to export capital that overcomes any political, potential political backlash. And, and of course, for, for, from China's perspective, they, they want to, China, the Chinese want to invest in, 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 in sound um, uh, policies that are, in which the investment is going to be able to pay, the, which they're going to be able to pay back their investment yeah. too, right? Yeah. Which is a, yeah. obviously a concern. For I think for sure. And I think. The, the, from what I, I hear and talk with people, I think the experience of Venezuela of kind of uh, had a learning effect from the Chinese side to be more cautious in their decisions there to, to lend money and to be, to be more concerned with the economic and returns of mm -hmm these investments in the long run. That's great. Thanks, Claudia. Miguel, I just want to turn back to you. So let's look at the, there's obviously some cautionary wins around internationalization of the, of the renminbi. And, uh, and in, this, in this report, which uh, is, I think should be on everyone's chair, and I highly encourage you to read it. It's a fantastic report, um, although I'm a little bit biased. Mm -hmm. uh, but in this report, we know the dual dynamic that increased investment can be a win for countries, but there's also a cautionary note of how an increase in uh, renminbi use could lead to greater fears of overdependence on China, uh, Chinese trade, Chinese investment, uh, Chinese finance. 
So Miguel, from your perspective, what, what steps should be taken? I'd love for the other panels to, to jump in on this as well after you. But what steps should be taken to ensure that the increased of, or the potential increased use of, of Remimbi, uh, that Remimbi brings an in investment to necessary sectors in Latin America, doesn't result in an over-dependence uh, uh, on China? Or, or is that too far-fetched? Do you not see that? No, I, I think that's too far-fetched. I think still, you know, our, our, our dominant um, investors um, are, are Countries that uh, you know, the European Union, the U.S., are the dominant investors in, in in the countries, and I don't think you can really extrapolate. I would say that could play more towards the Africa-Chinese relationship than the Latin America, um, 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 you know, uh, relationship with China. And, and just to give you a, an example, you know, beyond commodities, um, and actually we were just discussing with uh, with Claudia before coming here. Uh, uh, the first official visit of Peru's new president was to China, uh, uh, and actually um, um, to actually signal, you know, his intention to uh, deepen, uh, you know, the links and to attract investment, not to, you know, ask for loans, which is a different, uh, you know, important um, point made. Mm -hmm. But um, we were talking about this uh, bio-oceanic train that would join, you know, Brazil with Peru towards China. And actually, a, a huge train that was announced when the uh, Prime Minister of China came uh, to the region a, a year ago. And this was actually, uh, a lot of pragmatism came by, and that huge project of 60 billion was reduced to a commuter train outside of Lima mm -hmm. uh, as a priority. So I think this you know, over-dependence uh, you know, theory uh, you know, doesn't really apply. We still do have huge necessities of, uh, of investment, of FDI, which is receding in, in many countries. And obviously, we're open to receive a lot of investment. But I don't see any, any particular fear. And also, I see a change in the nature of investment, even in extractive sectors. Back again to the case of Peru. 20 years ago, we privatized our, our, the public, the SOE firm of, 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 of Aron. Uh, uh, and it was actually a really bad experience, lack of uh, compliance with environmental labor standards. That was 25 years ago. Nowadays, we have you know, huge Chinese companies coming in that meet high standards. They actually stock in the Hong Kong um, and London uh, uh, market, uh, capital market. So very sophisticated, uh, run you know, under high standards. And there's been a change, uh, I think, in also the composition and the type of investors we're seeing from China coming into the region. Barbara, on that point, do you see now, as Miguel mentions, there's been this change in the composition of investors, uh, more sophisticated investors, uh, more sophisticated uh, projects. Um, but you know, with the as talking about the Remimbi internationalization um, that can open up the Latin American market now to Chinese companies that don't necessarily have access to international credit and dollars to invest. Um, it's, it's, previously, companies were constrained by that. You had to always be able to invest and, and have that access to, to dollar credit. So how can Latin American companies best evaluate the investment offers that could come from this new crop of Chinese companies that don't likely ha have had as much global exposure? It's something that we, we tackled a little bit in, in, in the report, but I'd love your perspective on this. So two things. One, the composition of Chinese investment in Latin America is changing to a certain extent. There's certainly been a Chinese learning curve. And I think Peru is sort of the poster child for that experience, where both sides have really 
gone through an evolution in terms of a country like Peru, um, setting out standards for all investors, including the Chinese investors, and China through changes in its policy and also just learning the Peruvian environment um, where for Chinese companies, dealing with civil society was a new experience. And when we did our report, some of our interviews really pointed to the difficulties in learning the culture of the country. China has been invested in Peru for decades. It's gone through very difficult and very positive periods in Peru. And I think that that has contributed somewhat to the increased sophistication and increased also sophistication of investments in Peru and some of that change. And you see that happening in other countries in Peru as well. That said, China still invests predominantly in natural resources and in infrastructure. And so China is a natural resource seeking and a market seeking investor. If the internationalization of the renminbi can somehow move China more into an efficiency seeking investor and help Latin American companies become part of global value chains, that would be a tremendous help to those countries. And I suspect that another part of your research program, the Pacific Alliance countries, are thinking about how to align their policy in order to be able to do that. Um, the second part, should we worry, should Latin American countries worry about these Chinese companies that are coming in without standards, without having to hold up to sort of New York Stock Exchange standards and without US dollars. Well, if a Chinese company comes into a country like Peru, um, it's going to have to meet the standards of the Peruvian um, environment. It's going to have to meet labor standards and um, environmental standards. And here, I think there is a burden on Latin American policymakers to think about what risks might be associated with investment in, from companies that, with which they may not be as familiar. And so really make some you know, resource allotments so that those standards can be enforced, particularly at the local level, where you sometimes don't have great budget for evaluation of this. Um, in terms of the, the currency issue or the, the capital issue, um, I would just say that companies that aren't prepared and aren't well capitalized and don't have proper business plans are probably not going to do well in the market. And yeah. so that will probably take care of it. Well, looking, Claudia, looking at, 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 at China, inward Chinese investment into the region, uh, one deal on the table right now is possible uh, Chinese financing, financing of uh, Petrobras, uh, mm -hmm. Brazil's uh, mm -hmm. uh, state and oil company, with a potential $10 billion loan uh, from Chinese banks. How significant would, let's look at this deal and, and the Brazilian context, and Brazil is important, of course, mm -hmm. uh, because of the uh, huge increase in, in uh, investment and trade between Brazil and, and, and China in the last few years. But how significant would this deal be for the overall state of Chinese in, in investment in, in, in Brazil? And, and along the lines of, of, the, of our topic today, does Remimbi internationalization make more deals like this likely going forward? Mm -hmm. Well, Petrobras is the largest Brazilian company, it's, and it's one of the companies with the largest corporate debt in the world. It has a debt of $125 billion. Last year, it lost its investment grade, which made it more difficult, more expensive to access the capital markets. And the Chinese have been one of the main sources of finance for Petrobras. And this deal, it has been negotiated since the beginning of this year. 
there was an expectation that it would be announced during uh, the visit of President Michel Temer to China uh, earlier this month. And, but the negotiations have not been, been concluded. But there is an expectation that it will happen uh, sometime soon. So I think it shows the importance of China as a source of finance to, to Brazil and to, to Brazilian companies and show the deepening of the finance links between the countries. And I think one of the possibilities that the RMB internationalization might open to companies like Petrobras, providing that the reforms that are needed to this internationalization are implemented by the Chinese government, is probably the possibility of uh, issue bonds in the Chinese market and, and have one more access to a source of capital in, inside the China, Chinese and now, market. And now President Temer was just recently uh, in, in Brazil, uh, actually his first uh, his first foreign trip, right after he was confirmed as, as uh, sorry, was recently yes, in China. Yes. Sorry, uh, yes. his first foreign trip after he was confirmed as, as president, um, and he used that as an opportunity mm -hmm. to try to attract more Chinese investment uh, into infrastructure projects in, in, in Brazil. Mm -hmm. uh, how successful was that? Yeah, it was a bit by chance that his first international visit was to China. It was because of the timing of the impeachment process and the impeachment of former President Rousseff was concluded in the early afternoon of August 31st. He was sworn as president. In a couple of hours, he was in a plane to the G20 meeting in, in China. And there was so big uncertainty of who would represent Brazil in the meeting mm -hmm. that the list of dignitaries have the names of all the representatives of all countries. And in the case in Brazil, it was the leader of Brazil. <laughs> because nobody knew if it would be Temer or Dilma if the impeachment was not approved, or none of them if the vote did not happen in time. Uh, and President Temer had a meeting with President Xi Jinping. And besides that, which I think is more important to our discussion here, he uh, took part in a seminar that was organized to uh, Chinese investment to present the opportunities of investments in a huge infrastructure program that the government uh, launched earlier this year. It's projects that uh, in, in a total amount of around $100 billion. And there were 250 representatives of Chinese companies. And, and I think there was a great deal of interest, especially in uh, projects related to transport and logistics that could make it more efficient to the e export products from the region to, to China. And I think there is, uh, there is an increase in recent, especially since last year, in invest, Chinese investments in Brazil. I think it is a factor of a convergence of factors the need of Chinese companies to invest abroad, the devaluation of the Brazilian currency that made it cheaper to invest in Brazil, and also uh, something that we might see the effect more in the future, the, the huge investigation of a corruption scandal in Brazil that affected many of the large, 
large Brazilian companies that used to take part on infrastructure projects. That's great. Uh, I want to I have uh, one last uh, round of questioning just uh, quickly mm -hmm. uh, on the U.S. implications. We obviously are here in Washington, so it would be, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the U.S. implications. Uh, but then we want to spend the last few minutes to open up to questions uh, from the audience. So start thinking about your questions. I know there was one in the first row here from the last panel, so if there still is that question, we can, we can take, that, take that first. Um, but uh, U.S. implications. Um, uh, Miguel, you were uh, uh, you, uh, you served uh, most recently as a as a diplomat as Peru's ambassador to the uh, to the United States, um, and we I think we this we've we've talked about in this panel that that the the, the potential implications that Remimbi international relation has for bringing in more investment uh, into Latin America. I think the, the panel seems to conclude that there's probably less potential that this will bring for Latin America, for countries' investment into China. But as you think about what this could mean for uh, Chinese investment into the region, how does this, um, how do you see this all as, this, as having political or economic ramifications in the U.S. relationship with those countries in the region uh, with which uh, uh, there will be even greater commerce and, and investment with, with China as a result of this? Actually, uh, I think more important is the lack of approval of TPP mm -hmm. uh, than, than the RMV um, discussion, to tell you the truth. Um, and actually, now that APEC uh, is also being chaired by Peru, um, uh, there is a tension between the US and the Chinese in terms of uh, actually pursuing a free trade agreement where China is part of it. Uh, and that's the blueprint that's being discussed uh, 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 in Lima, at the end of the uh, of, of, of you know uh, you know in November when we have the uh, summit summit of, uh, of leaders, and, and what will happen you know if the TPP would be postponed uh, till you know who, who knows when? Um, I think that's more of a, an importance in terms of uh, the the impact on on Latin America, uh, China plus relationship. I see their real tensions. Um, I see their a, a um, you know a a, a concern uh, from the the U.S. administration uh, of of giving away space for uh, for uh, you know Chinese involvement. Obviously, the RMV will be a vehicle to you know uh, to accelerate the, the flows uh, uh, and to um, it's one another you know way to uh, uh, join both both regions. But I, I suspect that actually now the focus will be what happens with trade mm -hmm. agreements. And that's actually uh, something that we more concerned as an as a former ambassador. As a former ambassador, um, I think you always still carry the, the title, though. Uh, the uh, Barbara, do, do you agree with Miguel? And and also along those lines, I mean, uh, maybe, maybe this can be an opportunity of not necessarily of of U.S. China competition, but is this is this present an opportunity for you know working together on um, uh, you know uh, the you know uh, kind of greater good which is the economic development of of, of, of Latin America so and, and bring rising up the the good of the region as a whole um, sorry no go ahead um, I so I, I can't disagree with Miguel, even though I'm supposed to. But I, um, <laughs> I'm trying to get somebody to disagree. No, with right. Each other. So, but I, I like your your scenario, and it sounds really nice. The U.S. and China working together for the greater good of Latin America. But I think we, you know, but here I'm going to disagree with you because Perfect. I think I'm trying to get somebody to disagree. So we first need to stop talking about building walls against our major trading partners in the region, and I think also just you know making statements about 
trade wars with China is not helpful for the greater good of the Latin American region either because, I mean, Peterson Institute has done really nice work on what that might mean for the U.S. economy. For the Latin American economy, that would be a disaster mm -hmm. for the United States, which is you know, U.S. and China being two major trade and investment partners. So, yeah. you know, if we want to constructively engage with China, yes, that would be that would be wonderful, and maybe APEC is one forum through which you know that is being done to a certain extent, and that could be used as a springboard for that. But I think the United States has an opportunity to show Latin America that it's concerned, that it's committed to the region with a strong Latin America policy that does not include trade and investment barriers. I want to make sure we, we uh, leave time for questions. Uh, and so we're going to go back to uh, Jerry's question. Um, no, it's, it's a different question. Different question. Okay, good. Different panels, a different question. I, uh, I just spent uh, two weeks in China recently, and uh, one thing that I find out is that the ODI in 2016 is going to be for the first time higher than the FDI. So China is going out to invest. Having said that, we the investment in China out of the financial, like the Chinese Development Bank in Brazil. We didn't see too many projects coming in the infrastructure or other real projects that we can touch. I mean, in the biggest one was probably Bahamar in Bahamas, which was a failure. Uh, $3 billion went down. And the I don't see many more investments going to Mexico because it's kind of uh, Coke and Pepsi. So where you see real projects going, this is a question they ask me, so I'm asking you, uh, going into Latin America. Especially there has been an announcement of $250 billion going to Latin America in the next five years. Thanks, Jerry. Um, well, infrastructure still, yeah. you know, would be uh, the, the, the sector, you know, we still have huge gaps to, to fill. Um, um, I don't know whether the, and each country has its own framework, but uh, we follow private, public-private partnerships. You know, and, um, and, and Chinese have been quite interested in, uh, in many of the big projects, uh, uh, bidding for an extra line of the subway in Lima or, or other countries. Um, uh, but th there's also this pra pragmatic view, huge train, 60 billion, joining Brazil and Peru. Uh, now it is a computer train in Lima. So uh, there's also uh, you know, some realism into, into um, uh, many projects, but I would say, Infrastructure, energy is still a very, very important sector towards the future. Mm -hmm. Barbara, you want to add something? I think that just shows how difficult infrastructure projects are. Um, I think everybody was expecting that with this new infrastructure bank, things would go much more quickly. And I think now reality is set in and expectations are being ratcheted down. And hopefully pragmatism will prevail, um, perhaps the goodwill and, and availability of funds will stimulate some countries to make things a little bit easier in those aspects, but there's still a pretty good potential. I think Brazil being a big potential market, um, but this last year hasn't been really easy for Brazil and for big infrastructure projects in Brazil either. Um, so I would say with time, take a medium to longer term view rather than a short term excitement, yeah. fireworks view, which I think everybody was hoping for. Um, I think that is a, an area in which there can be, not to be negative on U.S.-China cooperation, but where U.S. and China could help yeah. increase welfare. But. 
No, Absolutely. I think the case of Brazil is also uh, infrastructure, and I think there is a, an effort with this government to redone, the, rebuild the regulate, regulatory uh, in, in which environment which, in which these projects are done. There is a decision also to do public partner, public-private partnership. And, and I think one area that will probably be also attractive is the oil and gas. There is today Brazilian Congress is voting a change in the, the rules to exploration of the pre-salt reserves. And they will eliminate the necessity of Petrobras having a 40% participation in each project, which will make it more attractive to, to foreign companies. It's a, it's a huge development, actually something that uh, we at the uh, R Center had a report on that uh, in July about Brazil's, the potential of Brazil's uh, oil and gas market, and specifically mm -hmm. that has, has, is really helping to propel it. Uh, we have time for one, one last question. We can maybe take these, take you, I saw your hand, sorry, 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 so I had the fifth row first. Just say your name and organization. Um, hello, Benjamin Kreutzfeldt, uh, Johns Hopkins University. I um, would be very interested to know whether you feel that the um, SDR position of RMB in Latin America can I increase scrutiny or maybe ease transactions, ease the, uh, the sort of ease um, uh, looking at transactions um, between China and Latin America because they're both very cash-based. Um, I'm encouraged on the one hand having taught in Colombia that uh, n generally young entrepreneurs don't even know what the RMB is, um, but um, there will be uh, possibilities of uh, easing trade, easing transactions, and I wonder whether this will uh, enable um, greater scrutiny. We focus very much on the, on the high-end uh, big investments, but whether there will be possibilities of um, easing trade, trade flow, and scrutiny of trade flows between China and Latin America. Thanks for that, thanks, thanks for that question. Um, Miguel, Barbara? Barbara. I would say, so I think that's what Jason is hoping in his question, you know, cautioning against these investments of, that may not be as transparent as we would like. I, th I think that trends are going in that direction already. The internationalization of the renminbi won't be a silver bullet for that, but will certainly help increase the or increase visibility. Um, I suspect that this panel is indi an indication that people are paying more attention to this. And I suspect that that also depends on how much Latin American companies and governments use the renminbi. So I suspect that people like yourself paying attention to this and writing papers and so will probably help increase the knowledge among young entrepreneurs that the renminbi exists, that this may become an option. And as they become able to take advantage of that, um, potentially that will bring. Well, Barbara, I think that's, that's a, a great way to end our discussion is to give homework to the <laughs> audience uh, to help us on, on the follow-up. I'd like to also end, before everyone gets up, I'd like to end uh, by thanking, uh, along with Peter here, we want to thank uh, Maria Fernanda Perez, who's sitting, standing in the back, uh, who's been working tirelessly to make this event and this report happen, along with uh, uh, Ivy Yang and our, and our whole team at the, uh, at the Art Center. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Adrian, our founder, for being here today, and also, of course, uh, Jerry uh, uh, and, and the whole team, Martin and Jim and, every, and, and everyone over at HSBC uh, for their uh, sponsorship of this, not only this, this report, but this whole initiative. This really allows us to do what I think is oftentimes not done, whether in Washington or beyond, which is 
just looking in the, at the details of, uh, of, of the uh, Chinese relationship with, with, with markets like Latin America and realizing that there is no black or white answer. The answer always lies somewhere, somewhere in the gray. Thank you very much to all our panelists and to Douglas Arner and Andre Suarez for an excellent report, which if you haven't read, it's right here. <laughs>